while everybody's getting settled, I just wanted to test the sound system. Can you hear me in the back? Okay. Yeah. Before I really begin, I want to say that I've been up here so many times, but I still feel nervous every time. So as we begin this amazing and auspicious journey together, I understand from my own experience that there can be a lot of shakiness and vulnerability about beginning and, and how are we going to keep going on this path. So just speaking for myself, and I know in that way I speak for all of us up here that we remember in our own ways, hearing that wake-up bell in the morning, and I'll just tell the truth for me, is that there would be many times when I would wonder, am I going to make it through the day? You know, can I make it to that first sitting? And there would be lots of tricks, you know, like having a few alarm clocks that would, <laughs> would go off because maybe the first one didn't really wake me up. Or there were times when, um, certain retreats, when I would wear these long skirts, as like I'm, I'm wearing now, and a, a very loose blouse. And I would know that all I'd have to do is throw it over my nightgown. And, <laughs> and then just kind of, you know, wash my face a little bit in the room and do my hair a little bit like that, and then just get to the hall. That was the only intention that I could have, I could muster up in the morning. And then I would surprise myself, you know, and then be wide awake in the hall or be falling asleep in whichever way it was. Somehow I'd get over it. I'd I'd look back on the retreat and say, I made it. I, I really made it through. And there were a lot of times when I thought, what was I thinking anyway? You know, that why would I even come to something like this? Uh, Maybe when I could do it at home, or, um, you know, there would be difficult time in my life when I would wonder, why did I come at this time? You know, when certain things were happening in my family life or my financial life that I had to leave my, take a leave of absence without pay and wonder, how would I get through that? So more and more, I would have those experiences. But still, like many of you, 
you've been to retreats many, many times, and still those thoughts and feelings come up. And am I, am I right? <laughs> They'd still come up. You've been to, a lot of you have been to long retreats. And if I'm truthful with myself, I would notice that sometimes those empty echoes would come through and they'd be just like feathers going through the mind. And sometimes they'd be like really, you know, big birds that had a lot of muscle and would kind of make me feel overwhelmed. And so then there would be other times I'd feel shaky and vulnerable during the course of a retreat when outer conditions like in the retreat community would um, trigger or activate stuff inside of me or there would be a memory that would activate sadness or grief or anger and then I would wonder, can I get through this time? And there, of course, there'd be a lot of delusion in the mind and I would have a feeling, this will last forever. This moment like this is like a cement walkway that's making the path for me and it's going to be like this the whole time in the retreat. And it isn't. You know, we just have that moment of thinking that. Or there would be a really wonderful time in the morning when I'd be sitting and there'd be a lot of lightness and happiness and joy and I would think, well, this is going to last forever too and it wouldn't. And like one of my friends, a yogi says, there's nothing like a good sitting in the morning that ruins the rest of the day. (laughs) And so either way, you know, we can feel vulnerable about our practice So there's a lot of different degrees of feeling destabilized and unmoored into a sea of vulnerability when we're doing this amazing thing that we're all here participating in. Thoughts about the future come up, wondering about, um, you know, I would wonder about, are my children going to make it without me? And of course, I'd go home and they'd be so glad I was away and not asking them to pick up the clothes all the time, you know, or wash the dishes. Um, (laughs) Or I'd be lonely, of course, for my loved ones. And I just wanted to say those things because I wanted to actually acknowledge some of the big elephants in the room and not... um, ignore what's really going on in our hearts and minds when we start a retreat. So because of all of that, tonight I wanted to talk about faith and have some reflections about faith. Reflect upon faith so we can, faith so we can have some confidence in our innate potential for transformation. So we're all here karmically together because we have something in common. Not just you all, but I I speak for all of us here um, who are your spiritual friends guiding you on the path at this time. So each of us has come to be on this path because we have some intuitive intelligence and actual experience that our practice will bring benefit to ourselves. 
and bring benefit to those around us because we become better human beings. We may express it in different ways, of course, but we have this common yearning, yearning in a wholesome sense, not this wanting that's connected with leading towards more suffering. Not all wanting leads to more suffering, but this yearning to be more peaceful within ourselves. I mean, these are the things to ponder on that can give us faith in our ability to keep walking our path. We want to be more peaceful within ourselves so that no matter what stones of destabilization or overwhelm or discord are thrown into the pond of our hearts and our minds, we know from all of our past experience, we understand that the ripples will quiet down and that there will be some calmness in that pond inside of our hearts and minds that we'll be able to see so clearly, much more clearly within. If we just have the patience and the quietness to let things arise and pass away. We have this common wholesome yearning to be more content, to be more at ease with how our lives are unfolding so that we can enjoy the passing experiences of happiness without clinging to them. Or we can allow the unpleasant experiences to come without pushing them away and adding more suffering, like avoiding or aversion. So as we deepen in our practice, we we become more aware of that wholesome yearning to be free from the places that cause us inner agitation and pain, the agitation that comes from wanting happiness so much that we keep chasing after the wrong things, or avoiding the unpleasant so much that we have so much aversion to ourselves and all of those things that come along with that, you know, the, what we call the second arrow, it hurts already, then we shoot ourselves a second arrow of self-deprecation. So that yearning is good. That yearning for that, for the spiritual aspiration to go towards what is yet unknown. To be able to venture beyond the known. And to do that, we really need to face a lot in ourselves to go beyond what we already know, what we've already experienced, to not avoid the unpleasant, to not hang on to the pleasant. So this is the birth of faith. This is the real birth of faith. We're going in that direction of experiencing what we haven't known before. So some of us may experience it even more powerfully as a spiritual urgency. And I think a lot of us here, if not all of us, have that spiritual urgency. And in the ancient language that the Buddhist teachings were recorded in, which is called Pali, that word in Pali is samvega. It is the urgency to free the heart of the causes of suffering 
to free the heart of greed, hatred, and delusion. So it's really not about attaining something. It's more of freeing something in our minds, of kind of um, uprooting it, dissolving, dissolving greed, hatred, and delusion, weakening it, eventually uprooting it all. One of our beloved senior Dharma teachers, Larry Rosenberg, who was the founder of the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center here nearby, said that some vega leads to the conversion, to the freeing of the heart from an egocentric existence to a search of what is timeless, vast, and sacred. And when we touch into what is underneath that fear, that doubt about ourselves, that loneliness, um, that self-deprecation, that uneasiness, we see that we're here because of that. That innate uh, way that um, we know that there can be transformation within us. So in our own unique ways, we have this aspiration for ourselves as human beings on the path to fulfill our deepest universal need to really be free, to go what is beyond that basic need for survival or even happiness in this conditional realm of existence, to go beyond that into this unconditional realm of being happy beyond conditions in this relational level. So by aspiration, I don't mean a fixed goal, like we're aspiring to reach some top of the mountain where there's um, a beautiful, an always beautiful view, or nirvana, or nibbana, or some particular blissful permanent state. It's the aspiration towards purifying greed, hatred, and delusion. And we can't go around it. We can't go above it. We can't put it underneath the rug. We can't push it to the side. We have to go through it. So we do this by developing a mind and heart that's filled with generosity, unconditional love and wisdom. All the things that we're doing here to help us to train our minds to let go, to let go of the way we think things should be, to become more in alignment with how things are. So this is a dynamic process of awakening those dormant capabilities, those innate capabilities that are within us all as human beings. So we understand experientially, some of us, that to participate in this process, there is a deepening of wisdom. And that is bit by bit, we take that in, that we hear things here in, in the hall. We hear things from even questions that come in the hall. Sometimes your own questions have already the answer to them and you hear yourselves, or something gets awakened in you in a sitting, 
and there's an aha moment and you remember, I can do it. I know the way. I can just take this little bit of wisdom and it can take me just a bit further. And so we know what leads to the good. We know what leads to the beneficial. We know what nurtures that. We cultivate that. We develop that. And we use that as a foundation to carry on. And we understand experientially the opposite also. When I said a minute ago that we need to go through it, we need to go through and really experience the reality of the pain in our hearts and in our minds, the greed, hatred, and delusion that gets just... um, you know, habitually expressed over and over again in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. And we understand over and over again when it starts coming up, sometimes we know it after 10 minutes or an hour of it going through our hearts and minds. And then we learn to see it when it's in the middle and say, that's enough. Or we may see the oncoming of it and really be able to nip it in the bud. And we don't get caught there. More and more we don't get caught in those places. And we don't go down the rabbit hole of suffering. And so we need to experience that, a little bit of that suffering to know this is, this is not leading to any place good for myself or anybody else. So we learn the skills that we are learning here in this awareness practice to be aware of it, but not to get caught in it. This is what all the instructions are about. So sometimes to do that takes everything it takes within us to be able to do that. Every single bit of what we go through here is important. It's not wasted on us. It's helping us to grow stronger and to mature in our practice. So I want to tell you a story of the time I went to Burma. I had been to Burma to practice before, but this time I went to Burma to ordain as a nun. You can ordain temporarily when... um, you, you ordain as a nun in Burma. It doesn't have to be for a lifetime. So um, I went to, to my teacher. He, he has been my teacher for almost 40 years now, Seda Upandita. And it was a time when I'd finished raising my children and I could take time away from home. And I was raised in a Filipino family and so... It, it was okay. You know, I didn't just abandon my children. So I wanted to give you a little background. <laughs> it was okay to leave them with the family. And um, it's a strong clan of helping one another. And that's the way it is in, in our family. So when I went to Sayadawji Upandita, who knows me quite well, and I had been to Burma before when it was very difficult, you know, the heat and, and all of that. And here I was going to ordain as a nun, wearing layers of robes and, you know, um, it's hot and humid and um, 
shaving all your hair off and all of that. And so he's very short and to the point. And so he asks me, why are you here? You've come so far away. It hasn't been easy for you. Uh, You're away from the comforts of home. And I said, I'm here to purify my heart even more. And I want to go beyond what I have, what the mind has known before. And so he said something that was very unusual to me. I'd never heard him say it this way before. And he said, you must be willing to invest everything you have in your practice. You must be willing to invest everything you have in your practice. Now, he wasn't talking about my financial resources, which weren't very much anyway, but he was really talking about, and I got it when he talked about that. He was talking about, look into my own heart and notice what has been developed already and really take stock of that. And don't be shy about that. You know, look with wisdom in your own heart and look at the paramis, those, that ability to be really truthful, that ability to, be, to have loving kindness, to develop loving kindness, to have patience, endurance, to be able to make a resolve and keep it, and many more, and faith too, to be able to have faith in the practice, in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, in oneself. And so I recognized, I had to recognize those forces that were already within me. And this is what it takes to have faith in yourself, to really look at those forces. And sometimes, the, you know, the old empty echoes just say, I'm not good enough, or, you know, this is not, I'm bad this way, or I'm weak that way. And those are the habit patterns of the mind and heart. And we have to kind of really bring up our energy and be truthful with ourselves. You know, one of the paramis is truthfulness. And to be really, paramis are those um, beautiful qualities of mind that take us to the other shore, they say, to the shore of the unconditioned. So really be truthful with ourselves of what is here already. That is what brings us a lot of faith. Not pondering on what isn't, what's weak within us. But when that starts happening to say, turn the mind, incline the mind and heart someplace else. Let the inner conversation be about what's strong within us. So I needed to bring forth all those beneficial forces that have been cultivated so far, those forces of goodness. And I knew some of them weren't as strong, but okay, they're going to be strengthened. And I could really um, kind of put my foot down and walk on those places that were strong, walk with that. So a lot of what was needed was the energy of faith. Um, so, it, it's kind of, the faith in myself is kind of what I've had to work on a lot, <laughs> believe it or not. I have this strong a warrior energy within me, but I also have a lot of, th- I've had a lot of thoughts about 
I can't do it, you know, comes from past conditioning. And I've had to learn to see them, oh, this is just one of those feathers that are floating through the mind. I, I can just let it float through. So faith is the energy of seeking the good. It's not like wanting that seeks the good. It's not, wanting is actually this tanha wanting is kind of going towards what isn't beneficial. But faith, seeking the good, is going towards what is beneficial. So it has this seeking quality because there's some degree of experiential wisdom there. So it's seeking out what is good, what's going to be of the highest value to us on our spiritual path. So it's said that faith is regarded as a hand, a hand that seeks, that goes out and seeks and takes hold of what is truly valuable in terms of our highest aspiration. So some of what faith implies uh, as to what we need to look at in our lives, what we need to reflect on is what is our highest value beyond the need to survive or, or please anybody else in our lives? What's the highest value for our human existence in this life? What is our highest spiritual aspiration It's said that the hand of faith seeks after particular opportunities, spiritual friendship and wise counsel. That's why um, when Ananda approached the Buddha and asked and and said, um, Venerable Sir, the spiritual life is 50% of uh, our our energy. Isn't this what it is? 50% of our spiritual energy energy is um, spiritual friendship. And the Buddha said, do not say that, Ananda, do not say that. 100% of the spiritual life is spiritual friendship. And so this is really important in terms of faith because it's speaking with those who really can see the potential in us and that have faith, sometimes I need to borrow the faith of my friends to keep going, that keep us going on the path. Spiritual friendship, wise counsel, this is what faith seeks after. It also seeks after opportunities to hear and read the Dharma. So here, you know, this is such a rare opportunity where the whole of your experience is about hearing the Dhamma, reading, you know, quotations about the Dhamma all over this place. Um, Spiritual friendship, all those 40 plus people that didn't all stand in front of you, but all these people in the background just supporting all of us to be here. And all of us up here who may be a few steps ahead of some of you, just a few steps, um, and all the teachers above us, all the way to the Buddha, who are streaming the Dharma to you. So opportunities to hear and read, opportunities to take time like this, the good karma that you have to be able to arrange your lives to do this, to take this time. 
anything that inspires faith to carry on your aspirations, anything that will do that for you. So in Pali, the ancient language that the Buddhist teachings were recorded in, the word for faith is sadha, S-A-D-D-H-A. And this sadha is more like a verb. The ending of it, D-H-A, means to establish. To establish. It's a dynamic process. To establish that kind of confidence in our hearts that we can do it. Even if it means just taking that next step, we can do it. So the characteristic of faith is to establish trust. Trust in ourselves, trust in the Dhamma, trust in our teachers. They say it manifests as non-fogginess because when we have faith, moments, you know, when it really opens to us, and even sometimes we keep going and we have just a little bit of faith, But when it's really clear, there's this non-fogginess. The mind is very clear, decisive, and resolute. Like, okay, we can take that next step. I was reading uh, recently um, Martin Luther King Jr. You know, he just had so much faith. One of my um, mentors of faith and lived in my lifetime. I feel so lucky that I I was around during his lifetime. Much younger, of course, I was. But he said, it's really important to take that first step. That's faith. He was describing faith. I'm paraphrasing. It's so important to take that first step even though you can't see the end of the staircase. Just to take that first step and then the next and then the next So when we can feel really resolute and clear when there's this manifestation of non-fogginess, it's possible just to keep on walking. But sometimes all we can do is take the next step. And that's uneven, that's a little shaky, but it's all we can do. We can trust what we experience. That's what non-fogginess means. We can trust that we're walking the right path. So it's said that also the function of faith is to clarify like a water-clearing gem. I've never seen it, but they say that there are these gems, water-clearing gems that you can put in murky water and all of the, the grime kind of settles to the bottom. Then one can see clearly into the water, not only see a clear reflection of oneself, but can also see more deeply into the water to see what currents there are, like currents in the mind, in the heart, what debris there might be, what beauty there might be in the mind, in the heart. So this function to clarify overcomes the opposition, which is fear. Um, They say the direct opposition of um, faith is fear, because we don't have that kind of um, confidence in ourselves. To be able to enter into the waters of life to set out crossing the flood. The Buddha t- 
talked about in the suttas, crossing the flood of samsara, the highs and lows, the pleasures and pains of life, all the places where we don't feel completely fulfilled and satisfied because we won't in this level of existence, in this relative level of existence. So this clarification imparts confidence which overcomes the hindrances of aversion, attachment, um, all the ways of delusion. So it's said that there are three kinds, areas of faith. Faith in our teachers, faith in the teachings, and faith in oneself. So I'd like to talk a little bit about those three. Faith in our teachers. So in the West, mostly we have various teachers. There's not just one teacher that we relate to. I, we always kid with one another in one way or another. We say, it takes so many of us to make up even a little part of the Buddha, you know. <laughs> so it's really wonderful to teach as a team because sometimes I forget something and then Andrea makes it up the next time she gives a talk and vice versa, you know, I will think of something that someone else uh, that left out and that maybe I could cover. And so we help one another to give the fullest of the teachings we can in this short period of time to you. So I just want to talk about my own teacher because that's my personal experience. And it's not like everybody has this experience that they have a particular teacher. But for the in in my life when I was in my twenties, I was really having a hard time as anybody does in their twenties. And uh, <laughs> right, <laughs> it wasn't that long ago for me, even though I'm in my sixties now. But I still remember how much dukkha there was. I, I would. I guess I would never want to be 20 again. <laughs> so, um, in my 20s, I had three children. And, and by the time I was 25, they were all below six years old. So, that's dukkha, right? <laughs> so, um, so, I signed up for this um, month-long retreat during that time. And like I explained, you know, I, I belong to... Uh, Filipino Asian family, and there's there was lots of support and help for me, and things are like that in in at least in my family they were. And so this was um, the first trip of my first teacher Manindraji to America, and this was a teacher that um, Joseph met Joseph Goldstein met up with when he went to. Bur- to Asia and to India to practice, and he found Manindra. That became his first teacher. So it was a very ambitious intention. Um, I arranged uh, the the care for my children, and I didn't. I went in and out of the retreat. Truth be told, because I went to check, I went home to check up on them, and I couldn't stay for all of it, but I stayed for most of it. So anyway, I arrived late, way after registration for that particular retreat, and I was worn out and tired 
and I was given a place to sleep in a hallway. And um, in that hallway, it, it was kind of a wide hallway, and I, w- I laid down my, my like camping mat to sleep on, and, um, which was quite thin. It didn't take up much room. And I had heard about this teacher. I hadn't met him yet. And he was described as a beautiful Indian man with very dark, shiny skin and a bald head, and he always wore white. And so I was putting my mat down in the hallway, and here comes, who had to be Manindraji, because there was nobody else like that um, around. So he came towards me, and I thought he was going to say something really profound, and I would be enlightened right away, or something (laughs) like that, you know. I was very naive at that time. And so, but he came up to me, and he was very practical, and he said, is this where you will sleep? And I said, yes, this is uh, what was assigned to me. There was no more room in, in the other rooms. And he said, he said no, you, you cannot sleep there. He said, you, you must get good rest. And most of it I'm paraphrasing, but that I'm absolutely saying, quoting him. You must get good rest. So he said, um, I have a room and a, and a good bed, and I have another place to sleep. So you take my room, and I will go someplace else to sleep. And he did. He Actually, you know, there was a very large bathroom with a rug in it, and he actually slept there, I found out. <laughs> and he liked it. You know, com- I've been to his place in India, and that bathroom was like a palace compared to where he lived in India. So um, it was fine, and I thought to myself, you know what? Of all the teachers I could have in the world, this is a great teacher for me. He's down to earth, he's humble, he's practical, he felt like, it felt like I was part of his family, and he wasn't like on a pedestal. And so I, I sort of, in my heart, I sort of claimed him as my teacher, and I found out, you know, it wasn't only practical, but he had a lot of knowledge and you would hear stories about him and I've experienced. You would ask him, like many Dhamma teachers, you would ask him one question and they wouldn't stop until the last person in the room left, you know. <laughs> so, so that was my first feeling and direct experience of having a teacher. And he, he made he maintained that place for me until he died and, you know, even directed me to go to another teacher because he knew I needed a different kind of direction and teaching. And so that's how I went to Sayadaw Pandita from his Manindraji's advice. So, of course, I saw many imperfections in Manindraji. And sometimes, you know, he would be like close to me as a family member and stay in the house with us, and I would point out his imperfections, like, you're annoyed, Manindraji. And he would say, (laughs) he would say, he would agree, you know. (laughs) And he would say, my path is not yet finished. Because he wasn't fully purified of all greed, hatred. He was pretty up there, but he wasn't fully purified. 
So I was grateful to be in the presence of a real human being and not somebody who's so far beyond, you know, that I really couldn't understand what that person would say. He wasn't pretending to be fully enlightened. He would he would just say exactly like it is that the process of purification was not yet complete for him. So along the way, other teachers appeared and faith like a hand would reach out, you know, and say that I can learn from this person, like Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg, two of the founders of this place, or other people along the way, friends and, and young people. So supporting the ability to stay on the path, to reflect and to mirror the beauty of my heart when I couldn't see it. I mean, it's impossible to think that sometimes, you know, when I know the goodness of my heart, but sometimes I lose sight of it and lose sight of my strength. And to endure the unbearable, and there, there are things, you know, they say as you go along in the path that we get to see dukkha much more clearly. And um, it's not like a pebble in your shoe anymore. It's more like a little piece of grand, a, a grain in your eye. And it's more uncomfortable when you see dukkha. So it isn't like things get easier along the way. You know, you, you feel the dukkha right away. You see it more deeply. And it really makes you want to be totally free. And so uh, people think, oh, it gets easier. You know, you just see dukkha more clearly, but what gets easier is your awareness becomes stronger. And all, a lot of the beautiful qualities on the path, equanimity, faith in oneself, and metta, and all of that truthfulness, that becomes stronger. So you still have to endure the unbearable. Sorry for the bad news, but you still do. And there are beautiful moments too, many beautiful moments. So there's growing confidence in oneself, there's confidence, um, uh, unshakable confidence in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and the Sangha, and those you choose to have trust in. So it points the way to more wisdom and more compassion and starts to really know you can fill, fulfill your highest aspirations, your potential to be a really noble human being. So here what I want to say that whenever your light of faith <clears throat> is not so bright in, in the teacher, Manindra would always say, look to the teaching and not to the teacher. Because go to the, go to the suttas and read uh, what, what the Buddha had to say directly or hear it. Sometimes I would just, you know, Bhikkhu Bodhi has this wonderful... Um, uh, I guess I, I got a, a, a particular website that I, I do- downloaded a lot of the suttas from in one of our great um, bhikkhus of the time, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's done a lot of translations, reads the teachings of the Buddha. And sometimes I just listen. 
I just put, you know, put the earphones on and just listen. And even though I fall asleep sometimes and just going straight to hearing the words of the Buddha. So I'd like to um, all remember a time that there was a certain teacher going around where I would read the words of this teacher and feel really inspired, but I wasn't really impressed by certain actions that he had in the world and certain behavior that disturbed me. So I went to Manindra and told him about it. And he said, you know, if the words really inspire you, then take in the words. At that time, that teacher must have been really inspired too. But sometimes a perfect rose can come from an imperfect giver. And so we can hear from every side. Manindra used to always say, you can learn from every side. Don't think that sometimes, you know, a person is in front of you and it hasn't had that much experience or someone is like a teacher trainee and, you know, giving a Dharma talk. Some of the most profound things I've heard that have turned my mind have come from the innocence of... uh, a new teacher on the path. So it's how we interpret the teachings. Does it lead to harmony? And to cultivate that, if it does, does it lead to harm? And turn away from that, not with aversion, but with wisdom, using our own spiritual sensitivity. In this tradition, we often hear the phrase, ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. Don't let yourself be blinded by just following, like, um, you know, we don't know what we're really doing, to test it out for ourselves. So the Buddha gave this response that I'm going to read to you to a group of citizens from the town of Kesaputta, and they were called the Kalamas. Many of you have probably heard that this already, but it's worth hearing again. And um, they had been visited by religious teachers of divergent views, and they were confused. So they asked the Buddha what to do. And he said, Do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated hearing, nor upon tradition, nor upon rumor, nor upon scripture, nor upon surmise, nor upon bias towards a notion pondered over, nor upon consideration that This monk is our teacher. When you yourselves know these things are unwholesome, blamable, censored by the wise, when undertaken and observed, these things lead to harm and ill, ill, so abandon them. When you yourselves know these things are good, blameless, praised by the wise, undertaken and observed, These things lead to benefit and happiness. Enter on and abide in them. So it's by going through, not around, not over, not shoving it under the carpet, but by going through our path of practice. This is how we learn. So that's faith in the teachers, faith in the teachings, and now faith in oneself. So first to say that sometimes in the beginning I had to borrow the faith of my teachers in me in order to keep going. And Manindra would tell me a lot of stories about Deepama, 
You know, how many of you know of Deepama, the story of Deepama? Read the book, Knee Deep in Grace? I think it's called something different now. But I never met her, but she became my major role model because I heard so many stories about her. She helped me have faith in myself because I'm a householder, like she, she was. Manindraji often spoke of Deepama, uh, that was one of his students, and it was also his relative. Um, she was also a mother, just like me, and she surpassed Manindra by his own uh, saying that he, she surpassed Manindra in her attainments in the Dharma. She had tremendous suffering in her life. She had physical illness, loss of children and a husband, and um, she knew that her faith in the Dharma, her faith in her teacher, her faith in herself, had to match that suffering, had to be commensurate on the same level of strength with that suffering. There is a story of her practice in Burma where she so much wanted to hear the the teachings that the Mahasi Seodao, our grandfather teacher, was going to give, that she wasn't feeling well, but she crawled from her place to the Dhamma Hall. And I've been there, know the, was shown the place where she stayed and how far it is to the Dhamma Hall. And that's a pretty long way for someone who is sick to crawl to. Now, I'm not saying that you should do that um, here. <laughs> Stay in bed if you're not feeling well. Because you can be enlightened there too. You don't have to come into the Dhamma Hall. But she wanted to be to hear the Dhamma from this great teacher who was known to be a fully enlightened being. So she was quite astonishing in her meditative capabilities. And um, the stories were told about Dhamma in such a way that I always thought, well, if she can do it, I can do it. You know, so long ago, and I think many of us up here, if not all of us, had that kind of had those kinds of stories around us all the time, like, yeah, it's possible to be enlightened, or that's what you call it. But we, or I like to call it fully purified, uh, because it's more about letting go than getting anything. So that was the beginning of some inner certainty for me, that it was possible when I would hear Deepama's story. <clears throat> So I want to read this. Um, this is from an interview of Jack Engler. He's, um, an instru- he's been an instructor at Harvard Medical School. Uh, he, he taught psychotherapy and he had very, very deep practice. He taught here some also. And um, his teacher was also Manindraji. So um, those of us who've had the same teacher were called Gurubai because, you know, we're related by our, our teacher our guru. So he says about her, um, Deepama had this unshakable and contagious conviction that of course enlightenment was possible. It never crossed her mind for a minute that it wasn't. She conveyed that in everything she said or did. It was one of her gifts as a teacher to make you say, well, of course it's possible. When she thought a student's practice was ripe, 
She would tell them to settle their affairs at home and come and stay in a room next to hers and to devote themselves exclusively to practice. She would say, give me a week, give me two weeks, she would say. It was typically during this short period of intensive practice that they experienced awakening. That's another reason for remembering people like Deepama. She embodied an incredibly deep level of realization in a very traditional way and was able to convey it just through her presence, the promise that the Dharma holds out for human life, an end to suffering. It's so easy for that to get lost in readjusting our sights on more clearly realizable aspirations that are not as high as that. So at different junctures on the path, faith in oneself is most challenging. And so I, like many of you, like many of us up here, remember Deepama. I I met some of those people in India that um, Jack Engler is talking about. So it's, it's very promising. So sometimes it's easier to have faith in our teachers um, than in ourselves, and, and we need to borrow their faith, so we do. Ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. When Manindra felt that I was putting too much on him or, you know, kind of depending on him too much or even uh, Upandita, they would say, the Buddha solved his problem. Manindra would say, the Buddha would solve his problem. Now you have to solve yours. Just so directly to me, you know. And I remember one time I went to see Upandita and to pay respects to him when he was giving one retreat. And I said, I'm so happy to see you, Sayadawji. I'm so happy to see you. And he just said, I'm not here to make you happy. <laughs> I'm here to make you mindful. (laughs) And so, I appreciate that kind of a teacher. (laughs) So, we need to have really devotion to our aspiration and not forget our highest aspiration. Or even whatever your highest aspiration is now, to really remember it. Maybe it's just to... (laughs) to make it to the morning sitting or, you know, whatever it might be. But remember that, and that that will really keep us going. Patience, endurance, stamina. You know, like one of our teachers, uh, Utejaniya, says, um, it's not, this is not like a hundred-yard dash. This is like a marathon that we're on. So it's one moment at a time one step at a time, one experience at a time. Oh, here's where I put Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, uh, thing about faith. Faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. And sometimes that's what we have to do. So last year in April and this year, I was able to uh, take some time to walk on the Camino de Santiago how, how many of you know about that in Spain? You know, It's a long, long walk um, from different places. You can start from many different countries, actually, and it's a more than a thousand-year-old pilgrimage. You know, I was born a Catholic, and I, I have um, a, a great deal of respect for my upbringing in, in that I'm not um, 
you know, a recovering Catholic. <laughs> um, so I didn't go because of that, n- not because it's a kind of a Catholic pilgrimage. I went on my own pilgrimage because I wanted to kind of, I wanted to walk. I just wanted to walk. And I wanted to real, really feel the earth beneath my feet and to be hours outdoor in, outdoors in nature and to let nature entrain what was going on in my heart and my mind. And um, that was really important to me. And so the pilgrimage um, of this uh, Cam- Camino de Santiago, Santiago is a place at the, on the... Um, west coast of Spain, almost on the coast, uh, where the, it's said that the bones of St. James are buried. So that's, um, wanted to pay respect to that by just saying what it, what it is. And so I took the route uh, kind of like the middle of Spain, because that's all at the time I had. So last year I walked um, for two weeks, and you can walk about 100 miles a week if you're doing 11 to 20 miles a day. So I walked 200 miles. And this year I I was in the area. I was teaching in Italy. So I thought, oh, I have some time. So I had three weeks. So I said, I'm going to walk again. So that was my resolution and I could do it, you know. So I said, this year I'm going to walk 300 miles. And so I took a little further out from the 200 miles where I started last year, and I started a little further away. And it was easier this time. And so that's what faith does. You know, you you walk the path, and then you know you can make it the next time, and you can go a little further. So what I learned is over and over again when there were times when I thought I couldn't take one more step, that I just took that next step. And my uh, walking companion is a Buddhist nun, um, the venerable sister uh, Viranyani, and she's a walker. And she really, she's trekked a lot, you know, in Nepal and um, parts of Tibet, I think. And so she would say to me at the beginning of the day, she's, she's good with maps, so she would map out where we're going to go and we can walk this far to this village because we would take this many hours to get there. And so she'd say, Kamala, come here, I want to show you. We're standing here and you can see these mountain ranges, you know, and we're going to go over this one and go through a valley and go over another one and go through a valley, go through another one and go, and then we're going to go, we're going to be at that place where we see the snow. And I would think, you're kidding. (laughs) You know, I'm going to do that? You know, the first time she said that, I thought, we're probably going to stop way before that, before I'd get over there. But you know what? I would make it. And I then when we got there, she'd make me look back and say, you see where that village is right down there, where we slept last night, where this is next to that and that? And I'd say, and she said, that's where you came from. And it would be really amazing. And that's how we feel. You know, sometimes when we we do this path, we would come across an experience where we thought, you know, in the past, I would be really angry or really lost in, in some kind of dukkha. But I see it's different now. Somebody said to me today that 
he was in one of these retreats, first or second half last year, and he can see the way he's doing, he's coming to it now, is way different than he did before. And so we learn along the way without even knowing it. We can't even see it sometimes. So <clears throat> this is, um, I want to read this poem by David White. It, it's about the Camino. And it's, but it's really about life and the faith in ourselves as we navigate through these ups and downs of our lives. And this is, a lot of this is, is of course, you know, the analogies of what we go through and, and what we feel and what's happening inside of ourselves. I'm just going to read half of it. It's called Santiago. That's the, the title. The road seen then not seen, the hillside hiding, then revealing the way you should take, the road dropping away from you as if leaving you to walk on thin air, and then catching you, holding you up when you thought you would fall, and the way forward always in the end, the way that you followed, the way that carried you into your future, that brought you to this place, no matter that it sometimes took your promise from you, no matter that it had to break your heart along the way. The sense of having walked from far inside yourself out into the revelation, to have risked yourself for something that seemed to stand both inside you and far beyond you, that called you back to the only road in the end you could follow, walking as you did in your rags of love. I just want to close there. So let's sit for a moment and and let those words and concepts dissolve. Thank you for your kind attention. Time to walk now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.